This is Hacker Public Radio, episode 2977, for Tuesday, the 31st of December 2019. Today's show is entitled, World of Commodore 2019, episode 3, Life After Commodore. And as part of the series, Interviews, it is hosted by Paul Quirk, and is about 28 minutes long, and carries a clean flag. The summary is, a presentation by Dr. Richard Immers, author of Inside Commodore DOS. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Hello, good listeners of Hacker Public Radio. This is Paul Quirk, and I've returned this week with my third episode of my World of Commodore mini-series. This episode features a presentation by Dr. Richard Immers, who is the author of Inside Commodore DOS, among other accomplishments. This was a groundbreaking reference book for Commodore nerds back in the day, so catching up with its author so many decades later and getting some inside information was pretty exciting. This presentation included visuals that are not available in this audio podcast. If you would like to see and hear this and other World of Commodore presentations, I recommend you go to the Toronto Pet Users Group YouTube page. That's Toronto Pet Users Group, spelt as one word, without spaces, and the word users is plural. A link to this YouTube channel will be available in the show notes. And so, without further ado, I present to you Life After Commodore by Dr. Richard Immers. Hi, I'm Dick Immers, and I'm here today. A dear friend, uh, Kim, uh, contacted Golan regarding uh, some vintage Commodore equipment that I had. And uh, I'm in the process of moving. I had all of this in the garage, so I brought it up. Uh, Golan took it off my hands. Of course, the one box that I need to present as my 1541, which is disassembled, all my breadboarding, my 64, everything that I used to author the book with, um, I'm still looking for the box. But uh, sometimes I wade through my garage and I, can, you know, I look around to see where it is and I don't see it yet, but when I get that, I will bring that in. Um, the book was published in 83. It went right to the top of the charts at the same time that the computer book industry was collapsing. Um, I was not the first person that was approached to write that book. The uh, first person was uh, Luke Cargyle, and uh, he lived in Arkansas. He Apparently, would go to his door once a year and sign royalty checks and give the money to the schools, and then he would close the door and they wouldn't see him for a year. The contract, when he declined it, went to an engineer at GM uh, at AC Delco. 
Uh, he got the contract, but he had to decline. He had a son who had been a swimmer, was in a diving accident, became a quad. So they were beginning to migrate and look at uh, therapy for him in Colorado to get motor function back for him. So it came to me third hand. I was a newly minted PhD who had been teaching for probably a decade. You're expected to publish. I had never published. Um, academic world is very cutthroat and very competitive, and it's like you're getting promotions, but you haven't published. What's up with that? Well, I was a good teacher. And when the contract came to me, it was open-ended to do, to do anything that I wanted on the disk operating system, which I had used Commodore equipment when I was going through graduate school, and I was familiar with the internals of the drive, uh, but not the way that most people believed. Um, I first got my Commodore, I think, in 1978. I had gone in, after I'd finished all my coursework, um, to a place in Ann Arbor called Newman Computer Exchange. And Newman was like a boneyard for boards and stuff that were taken out of minis and mainframes, and you could go and you could pick apart components. And I'm in there, and there's a fellow standing in the room, and I'm looking at an apple, and there's a Commodore on display, and he says, you want one of those? And I got his name. I put, I think, $800 down. I waited a year for the machine. So it turned out that the fellow that I approached, I had gotten a piece of software. It was protected. I broke out of the protection scheme, and I began to look at it, and I translated it by hand, but I had no idea what these symbols were. I was a Fortran programmer. That was what I passed my foreign language requirement in for my PhD, which was in the fine print, and they told me never to do that again when I asked to take flying lessons as part of my curriculum. So I went to Jim not realizing that he was one of four people that Bill Gates had given source code to for Microsoft Basic. So when you would ask Jim a question, he would go back to a briefcase. I had no idea at the time what was in it. He'd look and he'd say, yeah, that'll work, and he'd close it. <laughs> well, it turned out that Lou Cargill in, in Arkansas also had source code, and Jim Butterfield had source code. The fourth person, I never found out who they were. But I would work with Jim off and on. He had a very interesting background. He was studying to be a Jesuit priest. And during the Vietnam War, he took opposition to the Catholic Church's stance on the Vietnam War. And he dropped out of seminary. He then enrolled at U of M as a philosophy student. He went to his professors. He asked to be flunked in all his classes to challenge the draft board. Uh, he was a member of the Students for Democratic Society, which I was told to stay away from. Uh, I ended up knowing these radicals by default. But Jim went on to invent, uh, he, he was the lead designer on the Guru Terminal for Ann Arbor Terminals. Uh, he applied for a job for, as an assembler that said specifically they wanted a woman to do it. And he went in and he talked to the owner of the company 
and they began to talk philosophy. He got hired. He became their lead designer. He then went on to uh, work on the programmable thermostat. And from then, he uh, began to... uh, Today, he's retired. He gets back to the archdiocese in Ann Arbor and does computer maintenance, networking, and that type of thing. But when I'm working with Jim, it's like there's nowhere that I can compete with these folks, so I began to study the drive. But I had assistance in that. Uh, The book like that can't be done without source code. I mean, that is fairly obvious. Uh, I was given source code by Keith Peterson, who worked for Commodore in Chicago. I had the source code, and I sat on it, and I didn't know what to do with it, so I wrote Commodore. Asked for their permission to use it in this book. And in doing that, I never got a response back. So when you look at the memory map in the back, it is in a European format that's by design. That was to keep from getting sued because Commodore didn't have the greatest reputation with people back then. And you have a liability when you publish. I did not have permission to use it in writing, but it was one of these wink-wink type things on the side. So building the book around that memory map, I had a student in the class in Illinois, uh, Dr. Neufeld, who uh, had not published either. So it's like, if you can transcript this or transcribe this memory map for me, You'll get a ticket punched in academia, I'll get a ticket punched, and we're good. And so he had the, basically, the I won't say the lion's share, but that was probably the hardest task, was translating that from normal standard assembly language into a European format. His wife did a lot of the proofreading of it, and uh, the memory map is probably the most valuable part of the book. Uh, that's the reference area. I began to demonstrate how you could basically write machine code, preload a buffer, execute it in a buffer, that type of thing. Um, But uh, that's how the book came about. At the time, the industry was collapsing. I think it retailed for like 20 bucks. Royalties were two bucks on it. I would split it with Jerry, except we weren't getting paid. The first check bounced. I think for $5,000. And I talked to the publisher, and of course he FedExed out another check, which bounced. Uh, I think all total, I probably got $10,000 for writing the book. I didn't write it with the intent of making money. No one does that. Um, It was just to get a ticket punch somewhere along the line. And in doing that, uh, it was infuriating because... He began, when Datamost folded, uh, he took it into bankruptcy. He was a former Hollywood accountant, so he knew all the ways to screw uh, authors, musicians, all of that type of thing, and he applied those same practices to the book industry. I always used to wonder why you would see one great piece of work from someone, and then you never saw another thing, and typically it's a contract dispute. Uh, Dave would get $2 a copy to pick up the phone and say you can print 20,000 copies. 
Uh, it was sold to Brady, which was a medical um, book publisher. I think they picked up two of the Datamos titles. And then it went to Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster wanted me to go on and do something else. But it's the same old contract where, you know, what it, during discussions, it would get down to this point. Do you own the copyright? Nope. Thank you very much. And they'd hang up. And that's typically the way it goes. You could try and write a contract yourself for the second publication. No one will ever accept that contract because you've made certain modifications that work in your favor, not the publisher's favor. Well, the industry was collapsing, and I moved out of academia in 85. I went into industry. I worked for a subsidiary of General Motors, and they put me to work on uh, digital equipment. Um, hardware. I think they spent about $100,000 retraining me uh, to work on basically big metal at that point in time. Uh, they allowed me to, I think, speak at one obligation that I had in 85 and then said, you can't do that anymore. You have to focus on, you know, what, what we're doing. And uh, I worked for that subsidiary for 12 years. I then went on and uh, worked as a manufacturing uh, engineer for the parent company for another 20 years, and I retired at the end of 2016. So um, that's pretty much it. I don't know. I can open it up to questions. Um, publishing was interesting. The galleys were fun to go through. Um, I spent, I think, a total of two weeks with Jerry. Uh, we worked together. He was uh, from um, Manitoba, so I got to to go up to the prairies in the winter when it's 30 below. <laughs> and you decide whether you want to run out and get a cup of coffee or not. <laughs> but uh, it was an interesting experience. But I didn't drop out to drop out per se. Uh, I have still followed Commodore. Um, I had an Amiga. Uh, but I lost a daughter in 87, and in doing that, I just put my Amiga aside, and I just began to focus on other things at that point in time. Uh, computers were not important, and there was like a two-year period where I didn't focus on computers at all. Uh, by then, Commodore was drifting. I mean, we would follow the news in the States. Uh, you never knew what was real, what was not real with them. Um, uh, I admire the book, like On the Edge, uh, which is the story of Commodore. I think that's pretty accurate. I had been out to their headquarters in Westchester. Um, I was underwhelmed. But then working as an engineer, I was underwhelmed with some of the stuff that we were doing. You would expect all of these fancy prototypes, but you don't really see that on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I still watch the documentaries. Um, I was surprised that you folks are still going after all these years. I would attend early on with uh, some of the Flint user group. Uh, we would hop in an old GMC motor coach and we'd come to Toronto and we'd spend the day when it was a huge acquisition uh, today. Uh, it's not that large, but you're still going strong and that's really kind of amazing to see. So I'll just open it up to questions. Um, Talked about the back part of the book with the commentary on the yes. source code. Just so I understand right what happened, 
Somebody had a copy of the source code, and it was sort of... Keith Peterson did. He was a Commodore employee. Uh -huh. I think he was like their Midwest salesman. He gave me the copy of it. Okay. With this wink, wink, you have permission to use it. Well, I'm going to contact Commodore directly, and I never got a response to my letter. So at that point, it's like I had to do something. I had actual source, which was in a different format than that. Jerry and I spent some time looking at how we wanted to develop a format that we thought was passable, that if we got sued, maybe the lawsuit wouldn't be as bad as it was. But without permission, with Commodore, you never knew where it stood. They were, <clears throat> I won't say they were a difficult company to work with, you just never knew where you stood. Well, the, having that commentary is at least as useful as having the source code because you, know, you, you, you end up looking at two, the two of them side by side. Yes, yeah. But that was, I know a lot of people have commented over the years that that's a strange way to do source code, more as a commentary standpoint. Well, I was forced to do that. If you if you publish actual source code, you know you're just running a listing, and uh, that doesn't quite cut it. I mean, they could come back and say, "Look, you literally lifted this and put it in in this context." And I think I was only asked one time by some young hacker, you know, did I have source code? And I, you know, I told him I did. You can't do a book like that when you're looking at tables and lookups and mnemonics inside. Uh, you can't do that without source code. The specific labels used in that commentary, did they come from the Yes, they did. They did, okay. They did. Those labels are Commodore's own labels. I always wonder about that. Are you involved in anything computer-related today, open source or anything like that? No. I... Uh, I am, but it was from an industrial standpoint. I began to work on programmable logic controllers. I ended up at GM's highest engineering award. I ended up with four patents. Uh, I gravitated from personal computers into large hardware. Then uh, back, I spent eight years on the shop floor working as a manufacturing engineer and then 12 years at uh, the General Motors Tech Center in Warren uh, supporting 500 engineers. Um, they would basically lay out machinery or a cell um, in my application, and then I would generate like 100,000 lines of machine code for them to go out and start up a cell on the floor. And uh, I focused on other areas, and that was open source within the industry. So Very little with microcomputers. Although I have followed, like, the Reborn 64 that's basically a joystick that's bundled. And uh, um, I have a friend that has one. Um, I have the original one that Jim Butterfield worked on. There was a gal in Toronto that basically put the 64 on a chip inside that joystick. And Jim was very supportive of that. It now is, you know, the one that looks like the little 64, and they're redoing it. Jumpman was my favorite game on the 64. <laughs> but when I was in grad school, what I had was a VIC. And uh, 
I would upload my data to the mainframe in Ann Arbor and I would be playing what was then called Jelly Monsters. It was Pac-Man from Japan, but it was the original Pac-Man. So I had an arcade panel that I converted into a joystick and I would just mindlessly play and, you know, uh, that was probably my favorite game of all time. But the appeal on the little joystick is the, or the new Commodore 64 is the Jumpman game. You said that uh, you wrote the book not knowing if Commodore would sue you. Did, did you ever hear anything back? Never heard after? a word from them. And I thought, well, that no word is a good word. <laughs> 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 um, but by then, what had happened was there had been one book written on Apple DOS. I don't, I'm not sure who the author of that was. There had been one written on IBM DOS by Peter Norton. And the void that was there at the time was for Commodore. I don't think anyone thought the 64 would take off like it did. And it went like gangbusters. I mean, it was the best-selling computer in the world at one time. Um, from everything I've read, it was the Amiga that took Commodore down, uh, the schism inside. Um, I have worked with programmers over the years. I spent 30 years as an industrial programmer. I have always felt that the people that I've worked with would benefit by going through an 8-bit computer camp because you have confines that these people are unaware of. JavaScript is like, we'll bring in this library. I think my favorite joke at the time was that the next version of Microsoft Office would be called Microsoft Office Park because that's the way software goes. It's just absolute bloatware. And I would write code that would basically time cycles, was as lean as it could be. Um, I think the last program that I wrote before I retired was three lines. But it took 40 years <laughs> <laughs> to be able to write those three lines. Of course, you have all these suggestions. Do this, do this, do this. Oh, we can do this and this. It's like, well, if you sit back, you can do it this way. And of course, these young kids, they don't even know what they're looking at, you know. And it was, you know, as succinct as you could possibly get it. But I don't know if there are any other questions. I'll entertain anything. I don't know that this era could exist today. You know, the... Um, Software's just gotten out of control. Uh, the one piece that I use all the time now is Photoshop. I focused on that. It's like, well, word processes are good. Photoshop is great, and I'll focus. So at work, because I would write an application that 500 engineers would use, and I really wasn't trainable in my department because they went through my app to generate their logic to go to the floor. I would ask them to take Photoshop classes, and they would... They would cringe, but they would send me. So I was learning new terminology with wedding planners and photographers. And, you know, it's like, it's kind of humbling to sit back in an area where you know nothing about. You know. I was getting into multimedia on the Amiga, but uh, that was a very complicated machine. It was way ahead of its time. You know, my preference has always been the 8-bit because 
Uh, it was pretty simple architecture. Um, I think my first application, I had to do work in quality control on the shop floor. We were building 80 cars an hour. We were sending 50 into repair. Eventually, we would hear an announcement over the loudspeaker. We had two lanes in the plant. One was called I-75, the other I-94. And it was like I-75 is full, I-94 is full. They'd shut the plant down, send people home. So I was tasked with working on quality control. And I had written an application, but I needed plotting software. I got that out of the University of Arizona. The guy that sent it to me sent it to me as open source, and I believed in open source back then. But he couldn't do printing with it. So I pulled the character generator out of a pet, soft-coded it into my application, transversed it, and they had Petski when they would do the printouts, but at least they could see that there was printing on the printouts in terms of the normative data on the XY axis and the categories and stuff like that. To me, that was an easy task because I had disassembled the character generator at one time. And it's like, I know what to do. Of course, I'm down there with, you know, union people and we're pulling ships, which, you know, we weren't supposed to do. And it's like, I need to read this. And, you know, they would just kind of look the other way. But uh, it did have application very early on for me. And I then gave my enhanced source code back to the University of Arizona and got my hand slapped. It's like, we don't do that in industry. It's like, wow. So open source is one way. You know. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> so I did donate my pet. I donated my 4040 drive. I had an 8023 printer. I had a spin writer that I used early on to print my doctoral thesis. I drove a Chevette for two years to pay for that printer. It was more expensive than my car. Um, what electronics I could find during my move, uh, I had a car full. Now, try to get that past customs without a permit. I spent an hour while they drug swab my car, but asked me about what operating system does this not have? <laughs> None that I knew of. <laughs> and they were, you know, they were just lost. You know, they're. They, they did let me through, but I realized probably the next time a letter from your group would have Got five minutes? Yes? Um, have you wrote any other books? Or other no. You know what? I had never published. Oh. In graduate school, I wrote one term paper and my doctoral thesis. I would do anything not to publish. <laughs> now, I have thought since I've retired that I would like to write one called The Accidental Engineer and let people know what really goes on inside the auto industry. But I decided that I would need a law degree to defend myself <laughs> against the autos. And that's quite an endeavor. Use a pseudonym. Or huh? Use a pseudonym. <laughs> they will find you. They'll find you. But no. Um, I had just done some utilities early on that someone looked at and said, you know, they were pretty good to use. Uh, 
Um, but no, I you know had had not published before or since this book. Those that do, I admire. You know, when they stop publishing, I pretty much have a good idea why they stopped. <laughs> Okay, I guess that's it. Thank you for coming. I really hope you enjoyed Dick's presentation as much as we did, and I hope you're enjoying this podcast series. If you are, please leave a comment at my personal, non-commercial blog at peakwork.com, where you will find a picture of this presentation. And please tune in next week to hear Randy Rossi's presentation entitled Bare Metal C64 Emulation on Raspberry Pi. As a Raspberry Pi user myself, this presentation was a real gem. Until then, please drive safe and make sure to have fun. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.